0: Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. I've just had the most fantastic chat with my friend and writing buddy, Ray Cairns, about her brand new hot-off-the-press novel, Dying to Know, I was very privileged to read a very early draft of Dying to Know before it actually went to the publisher and to be able to give Ray feedback on the story. But even back then, it was an absolutely thrilling read, massive page turner, and it has only gotten better with all the revisions and the work that Ray has done to get it out into the world. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that Ray has been part of the kind of Rights for Women podcast family, right back to the early days when Kel Butler and I first started Rights for Women, and we had a feature which was called an Emerging Author segment where we interviewed emerging authors, people brand new to the writing industry, and followed their progress. And Ray was, I think, probably our first pick for the Emerging Author spotlight, and Ray then went on to have her first book, The Good Mother, out in the world as a self-published novel. She decided to self-publish The Good Mother and then it was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Debut Fiction Award, which, as far as I know, is quite unheard of that an indie novel would be shortlisted for that very prestigious award. It was then picked up by HarperCollins and revised and republished last year as Ray's debut novel in the crime thriller genre. Ray writes Crime With Heart thrillers featuring everyday people facing extraordinary circumstances. Dying to Know is her second novel with Harper Collins. It's a standalone Sydney-based thriller and centres around a woman's determination to uncover what happened to her missing sister. Ray draws on her own experience with working with troubled children, of course, in The Good Mother, but that's also a little snippet of that in Dying to Know. And some amazing research has gone into Dying to Know, which I'm going to talk to Ray about during the course of the interview. And so we talk about in this interview the book, of course, the amazing protagonist, Geneva Layton and how she was developed Ray's inspiration for the story. And we also talk quite a bit about her writing process, her entry into the world of traditional crime writing, and a whole lot more. So grab a cuppa sit back and join Ray and I on the Rights for Women Convo Couch and I know you're going to love this chat with Ray Cairns. Ray Cairns, welcome back to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thanks so much for having me
1: back, Pam. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you on and to get to talk about your soon-to-be-released, well actually will be released by the time this video comes out, this podcast (laughs) comes out, Dying to Know, your second thriller. So before we get going, tell us all about going to know what do we need to know about. It's a
1: standalone. So it has nothing to do with my first book, The Good Mother. It's set in Sydney, all in Sydney. It opens with a budding journalist, Geneva Layton, receiving a phone call that changes the entire course of her life. Her sister is on the line. She's terrified. She's trapped in the boot of a moving car. No idea who her abductor is and she's begging Geneva for help. Then the line drops out. While the police search for Amber, Geneva is left looking after her traumatised niece and nephew. Her days are filled with that and the days turn into weeks, which turn into months, which turn into years, until shocking new evidence is found. And then Jen becomes absolutely desperate to find answers. She becomes determined to get to the truth of what happened to her sister. But to do this, she has to take on the political power of her brother-in-law's family, the muscle of the motorcycle gang and the questionable support of a policeman who betrayed her in the very first month of the investigation. And the further that she gets into the truth, the more danger she gets
0: into. That is an absolutely fantastic summary of the book there. You have captured all of the different elements of it and I have to say, as you were describing that, because I have read the book and loved every page of it, but as you're describing it, I've literally got goosebumps coming up on my scalp. Oh, Oh It is actually spine tingling, and particularly when we go into the book and we're straight into the action with that prologue where Amber first disappears, but we're going to come back to that prologue in a little while. So this one is a little different to your first book. It's a lot different in some ways and similar in others, but it's different in that The Good Mother, your first novel, was inspired by your kind of lived experience, if you like, in Northern Ireland, and it was written and revised over quite a long period of time. Given that you were under contract for Dying to Know because you had such great success with The Good Mother, where did the inspiration for this one come from, and then how did you go about developing it?
1: Look, I am someone that is constantly asking what ifs wherever I am. And I'm listening into conversations. So I'm a real nosy person this <laughs> one, which is appalling. But yeah, the what ifs. I was listening to a, a young woman talk about her, how her entire life was upended when her brother went missing. And I sat there in the talk. Realizing I'd never really thought about the impact on the people left behind Uh, of The Missing. And that kind of stayed with me, that idea. And then I was driving to an event and following a Camry, one of those old Camrys that had the old style boots. And I sat there thinking, what if someone's in that boot? How would they? No, my mind is (laughs) bizarre. But it was like, what, how would they get out? How would they let somebody know they were there? What would I do if I was there? And so those kind of ideas merged. But where it was similar to the good mother was where I really come from is a moral question. So the morally complex question. So in the good mother, it was how far will the mother go to protect her son? And in this one, it is, it is the truth worth the price that your loved ones and you might pay. So I'm playing with that idea there. So my overall process is take this moral question, then I add a whole heap of what ifs and then I delve into research. I go down every rabbit hole I can possibly think of and imagine. love that part of the process. I also read the paper daily because quite often I, I like to keep up on current issues, but also I find that they inform the plot in a way that I don't even know is going to happen. Yeah, I find that Current Affairs makes its way onto the pages of my novels and that's happened in both books just from being up, up on newspapers and stuff. So then I also decided that at the heart of Dying to Not was the strong urge for humans for belonging. So whether that's belonging in family or whether it's belonging, joining a motorcycle gang to belong or whether it's doing certain things so that you still belong to the people within the job that you're in. Followed that through. So I had all this. I had the ideas about belonging. I had the very initial ideas for the book. I had the what if questions, the the moral kind of setup. And then I sit down and I start writing. So I don't know the plot. I write from the beginning, and I write the scenes in chronological order and see what develops. And I, I love that part of the process. It's almost like my subconscious has already decided what the plot's going to be, but I get to discover it as I'm writing it. And that's a really fun and exciting and thrilling part for me. I know Michael Robotham often says in talks that if he doesn't know what's going to happen in the plot, then there's a good chance the reader won't know. So for me, I love that. It works really well for me. So I had a year to, to write the book. But I wrote this first draft in about a month, but I hadn't quite finished it. That said, I was using speech to text. So between book one and book two, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and it really impacted my wrists and my fingers. So I couldn't handwrite the book, which is what I did with my first one. And then I couldn't type it into the computer because I couldn't sit for long periods of time. So I used speech to text and it really sped up the process. It was incredible. And But what it also did was make it a very dialogue heavy manuscript. And I don't know if that's because I come from an acting background, but I was very comfortable doing the dialogue and stuff. What that meant was I didn't have enough setting and enough kind of character roundedness for want of a better word, I finished that, well, I dealt with COVID like everybody else in the world, which did slow me down. And then I finished the manuscript and then I did three more edits. So the first edit I did was very much about putting in the setting and rounding out the characters and making sure the reader knew where they were. And then the second version was very much about story logic. So making sure that the logic was there and that I hadn't gone off them. Weird and bizarre tangents or where I had removing. And then I handed the manuscript to two beta readers, you being one of them. Thank you very much. um, And Laura Boone, another. And I took the feedback that you guys gave me, which was really solid feedback. And then I re did another rewrite and then I handed it to my publisher. And with my publisher, we did another edit. I cut a heap of words, another 10,000 words, I think I cut. And then, then we did a proofread and stuff, and the book gone out. So it was a much faster process for me. It's interesting, like someone's asked me why I only write from one point of view. And I do that very intentionally because I'm writing about an ordinary person in an extraordinary circumstances. I need them isolated and I need the reader isolated as well. So I write in close to the person, and it's very much about them being on the person's shoulder, almost in their head, so that they're as challenged by the decisions that the main character is having to make as, and I think for me, that is about trying to spark empathy in readers that morally complex situations off the bat it's easy well I would never do that but when you're in there and you're in their thought processes and they're backed into a corner I'm hoping that it makes readers think a little bit more about what they would do if they were cornered and it also from one point of view allows me to reveal the facts at the same time as the protagonist learns them and I think that helps heighten the tension somewhat through the novel.
0: Definitely it's it- well, as I love writing in that style myself, and I think reading in that style is just absolutely creates that empathy and suspense. So that was such a great pro insight into your process, Ray. And I just want to go back to something you talked about in terms of dictating or using speech to text. Yeah. So just for the writers out there who might be listening, what software do you use? And the other question I have is, do you do the voices as you're doing that? <laughs> okay. This is really embarrassing. Kind of, yeah. it's got,
1: it, I get to the kind of, when it transcribes, I'm like, the intonation's not there. <laughs> but yeah, it does really help getting to, I'm sure if my husband's overhearing me, he thinks I'm absolutely mad in another room, having these very strong conversations. Look, I use Dragon, but it's old software and unfortunately they no longer support Mac. So I use an old Mac computer for that because it recognizes my voice really well. But there's all sorts of new software. In fact, I think even just on Apple, you can do voice to text. I'm not sure how well it works because I haven't. I do it a bit on my phone, but Mm. I haven't done it for a whole manuscript. And I also have a little recorder that will transcribe into Dragon so I can wander around. So usually I'm in my front room wandering around in circles talking to myself.
0: Yeah, I'm a crazy lady with my imaginary friends. There we are. (laughs) No madder than the rest of us. Do you find that the kind of process in getting the ideas from your head I guess onto the recorder and then onto the page is that quite different to if you were just typing it out straight from your head? It's so different. I really had to be
1: patient with it's almost like my brain needed to reconnect the synapses. So my first one I handwrote. And even now if I'm really stuck in a corner I might handwrite part of a scene. It just seems to connect to a different part of my brain than even typing does. So when it came to doing the speech to text, I struggled. I complained quite a bit, I think, at first that I just was never going to get it. But then I just kept going and did it. And doing it daily really helped me break through that barrier. And it was like my brain rewired. But I also had to accept it was a very different first draft. Like I said, very dialogue-heavy than the first draft I had when I I think I had to accept that I, I couldn't quite do the setting descriptions that I wanted to do at the level I wanted to do them. And once I did that, then I could move forward.
0: Really interesting. So just back to the research aspect of Dying to Know, there is a strong thread of biker involvement, as you mentioned <laughs> in your little synopsis earlier. And I know that you researched this partly through some of the, I don't know if the term is bikers or bikies, what correct? Either. We'll go with both. Either. There we are. Okay. Yeah. Um, Your husband has a motorbike. Huh? You donned your leathers. Yes. You fabulous in them, right. I must say. And you went out riding and met quite a few people in the biker world. It's a very visceral experience. so You're really absorbing that information firsthand. The other thing that I know that you did was visit the PCYC, which of course features as part of Jesse the policeman's role in the novel. How important to you is it to get that kind of firsthand experience to be able to then put into the story?
1: I think because the research is really the kind of underscores my whole way of writing and I don't plot, it's so important to me to have visited the places, the locations of my novel. You can't always do that. So I spent a lot of time on Google Maps, Street View as well, trying to walk the places if I can't get to them. So that happened in COVID, obviously. But just meeting the people that I, the cultures I'm writing about is really important to me. When my husband and I started riding the bike, I realized quickly that this whole culture really intrigued me because there was all sorts of people, all sorts of ages from all walks of life. And I think I was really surprised by that. And, And then I knew though that there'd been a lot of infighting between the motorcycle gangs, the outlaw motorcycle gangs. That had spilled onto the streets of Sydney numerous times in the last 40 years with Really serious consequences for bystanders. I wanted to understand that world. So I read numerous biographies, both from a police perspective who went in undercover and the, and from the bikers' perspectives. And my husband and I rode to many bike pit stops and cafes and hangouts. And I just chatted to anyone that would give me the time of day and that whether they were weekend bikers like us, Or they were more serious about the biker motorbike lifestyle, or whether they dipped their toes into the world of outlaw motorbikes. And then I got really lucky and had the opportunity to talk to an ex rebels biker, and he was incredibly generous with his opinions on the police and the current state of outlaw bikers and the new wave of Balkans and why he wanted to live on the fringe of society, what that meant to him and what his experiences in that were. So that really helped me get a feel for the life and the, and, and the people within it. And then to counter that, I went to the PCYC and spent a day out there out at Cabramatta and I shadowed a police, a youth police officer out there. And I'd worked with youth police officers before when I was at the refuge, when I managed the refuge in the inner city, but I hadn't had the chance to really just observe and ask questions. And I was able to ask, why did you join the police and why the PCYC? It's not, doesn't usually show up as the first choice of going into the police force. I'm going to, I'm going to work with the youth. And that was really useful in giving me some basis for Jesse, I guess. The policeman in my book, by no means is he based on anybody at the PCYC, but it just informed his character. Again, it came back to the research. I just, I love it. it.
0: certainly shows in the book and it's so believable and you're really immersed in it as you're going through the story. So let's get on to the story itself. The protagonist of the book is Geneva Layton. Love the name. Who- After her sister's disappearance, as you mentioned, 12 years prior to the action of the book, she's caring for her niece and nephew, living in their house with brother-in-law. There is some friction there. It's not always happy family. But Mm -hmm. tell us about Geneva and what sort of person she is and what drives her and how she's coping with this kind of Radical change in her life situation. Obviously no spoilers, but <laughs> if you can tell us about Geneva.
1: Look, I really wanted Geneva to be different to Sarah from the good mother. She was Geneva. She was fun to write. She really was. She's just, she's a 34 year old, smart, tough, resourceful, motorbike riding, family oriented woman who would, won't give up on those she loves, no matter how tough the obstacles and I think it was her passion for life that was really enjoyable to write. But I also had to have something that gave her that extra drive to seek the truth because there was a lot at stake in doing that. So I decided to explore guilt and shame and how that impacts people's behavior. So I did a lot of research into that and then into missing people. And so for her, she's, given up in a sense who she is because of her guilt and shame she is trying to step into her sister's shoes or while her sister is not there with the expectation that her sister will return and but it, that requires her to swallow a lot of herself if that makes sense she becomes she tries to be smaller and her brother-in-law Hugh definitely plays a part in trying to make that happen too but at the kind of inciting incident of the novel, that's when they really start to clash, when she starts to grow again.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting trajectory for her character and great to see her over the course of the novel coming into her own and really taking ownership of herself and her life. The other person that is really interesting and we meet very early on in the novel is Jessie. The policeman, mm-hmm. Jesse Johns. He's a police star sergeant who works on Amber's original case, single mm-hmm. person's case. What role does Jesse have in the narrative and what do you think is driving him to be, to continue to be involved in Amber's case? Look,
1: he ha- is driven to correct the mistakes of his past and the way he treated Geneva and particularly Lily. In the past, Lily's the daughter. Sorry, who was four at the time of her mother's disappearance. He is trying to correct the mistakes that he made there by by being involved. There is also a, a an underlying attraction between him and Geneva, although Geneva hasn't won't even give him a bar of that. She couldn't be less interested and pushes him away. But that allows. Me as a writer to push Geneva on a kind of different emotional level, having that relationship. And he also challenges her that she is of enough value to have a life for herself, if that makes sense. So he tries to make her see that functioning from a place of guilt is not helping anybody. Mm. So I guess he's an antagonist in that regard because he's challenging her, but it's a different kind of antagonist.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting relationship in that way because there is that kind of antagonism between them, but he's also on her side, so it shifts and changes. But she
1: never knows the who's yes. on her side, so it's always this. And because he's betrayed her before, there's a real lack of trust there.
0: Yeah, which makes for some very interesting scenes. Kids, of course, Lily and Charlie. Now, again, it's very hard to talk about some of this stuff without giving away spoilers, so I'm <laughs> going to hand this over to you. They do play a really important role in the story, but what can you tell us about Lily and Charlie?
1: Lily and Charlie are divine. They So Charlie was 10 months old when his mother went missing and Lily was four years old. And so now when we return, they're 16 and 12. And they... Are struggling with a father who is unravelling. He is drinking a lot, drinking too much, but he's also a man who comes from great privilege and power and money and wealth and he's used to getting what he wants, but he's unravelling. So it's a very scary situation for the kids in that regard and Geneva is their strength at the centre of that. But Hugh doesn't value Geneva's role in it. In fact, he's threatened, if anything, by Geneva. So Charlie's traveling okay in the book because Geneva's the only mother he's ever really known. And as much as she won't accept that label, he, that's the relationship that they have. But being a 16-year-old, Lily is dealing with hormones and difficult peers and social media All under the lens of a high profile media case and she needs what she needs more than anything is her dad and he's not there for her he's more focused on how he belongs in his with his parents and his brothers how he can fit that in that Kind of family, and in that sense, he's not there where his kids need him to be.
0: Another fantastic conflict situation, of course, that just adds all the rest and makes it so thrilling. So, the Good Mother was set in both Sydney and Ireland. This one is set pretty much in Sydney and surrounds. And you've talked about your research with the bikers, but how important is the setting for you in writing the novel?
1: I really wanted to take. So, for start, Sydney is a hu- huge city. It has lots of subcultures. It has a number of different underbellies. And I wanted to create a fish out of water situation. So I have leather clad motorbike riding Geneva, having to live in affluent, upper class, beautiful Balmoral. It's a beachside suburb in Sydney. And and that gave me a An interesting dynamic that it wasn't a place she was very comfortable in. So I was able to use setting for that. And then we also go to biker haunts and biker compound. And I'm hoping that's something a lot of people haven't seen or experienced.
0: It's new to me. (laughs) Good. No, know it, it's a really interesting contrast some of those the settings that we go to in that biker world compared to Balmoral and, the- and it's
1: all in the same city
0: yeah I yeah really yeah. interesting so for people who will have read The Good Mother and loved it right what can they look forward to that is similar in a way and what new things might they find in Dying to Know? Look I think
1: I, it, it's similar in the sense that it's from one character's point of view and while she is their aunt she's still a carer and the children are very much her pri- a priority but she as I've said she's a very different kind of character she's much more healthy than Sarah I would say in her social interaction and then I'm still exploring a the, an underbelly kind of culture so you have that insight into an area or lifestyles that perhaps you've never come across so in in Good mother, it was Northern Ireland, and I was really trying to explore the IRA but, and the UV, but people do not romanticize them, get them to be the real people in real situations dealing with pretty horrid stuff. And in the I, saw, I wanted the same kind of feel with this book, like the dynamics of family, the power differentials within families. With Geneva, because she's the aunt, she has no legal recourse in caring for the kids, even though she is their, essentially their their main carer. And I thought that was an opportunity to look at that dynamic when one partner, even though they're not partners, it allowed me to go further because they're not partners, but where partners aren't, one partner has more power than the other when it comes to the children, the decisions that one partner may have to make and the things that they may have to give in to stay in contact with the kids. And I really wanted to put that on the page and make people think about it without them really realizing they are thinking about it. So that was that's a part of this book. High action, fast paced it's important to me that you don't really realise that you're thinking about these things. You're just taken away by the action. Yeah. And real people.
0: Yeah. Round people in quite difficult situations yeah. and having to work their way out of it. yeah 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 no I think that's all absolutely true so we've talked a little bit earlier about some of the challenges that you faced COVID being one having to use the speech to text were there any other challenges that you found with this novel being the second novel which are notoriously challenging was there anything else that you found quite challenging about writing this book
1: look it was it had to be a much faster process. I only had a year because I was under contract, but it was a clearer process as well because I understood what I needed to do in the editing, particularly in the editing stage, whereas I really had to learn about that with book one. Book one was absolutely my apprenticeship novel. I spent years on it and with each version, I learned and grew as a writer with a lot of help from other people. In this one, it was very much, right, you've done that. So now Where's the book? You know what you're doing. And to be honest, honest, you know what you're doing. It doesn't feel that way. When you're doing the second book, it certainly didn't for me. And I got traditional book two wobbles, questioning every decision I made, every sentence I wrote, every word I wrote. I had no confidence or trust, I guess, in what I was producing. And I think that's pretty common with 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 book two because there's also there's a creative freedom with book one that you don't know what you don't know so you just vomit it out on the page whereas you start doing that and then you go oh but what if I go into a corner or does that make oh and I had to really essentially to get that first draft out I had to shut the inner critic up I just had to literally go be quiet I'll get this draft out, then I'll fix it. And it wasn't until I reached that decision to just go, you know, yeah, you're on for the ride, but you're in the back seat and shut up, that I could get ahead and just get that first draft down. So that was a very different process for book two. But then I also had the advantage of knowing that I was handing it over to experienced editors who would be able to point out the problems. So that, that was an advantage. Yeah.
0: So yeah, definitely pros and cons. And I hate to tell you this, Ray, but it doesn't change with the next book either, which is still going to – not in my experience anyway. Okay, so there we, we mentioned earlier there is a fabulous prologue that pulls the reader straight into the story, and we don't want to give too much away about that. Prologues are widely debated in writing circles as to their value. Some you'll hear around the traps, publishers hate prologues, don't do a prologue. But many books have prologues, and I've noticed in the crime genre that it's quite a useful tool to have a prologue. So what made you decide to have a prologue in this case, and what considerations were there in terms of the type of information that that prologue was providing?
1: Firstly, thank you. Yeah, look, there is a lot of debate about prologues. The prologue of Dying to Know, is there to give a snapshot of the most important backstory. But I wanted it to be a visceral experience for the reader. I didn't want it to just be an info dump or revealed just through dialogue in in the present timeline. I wanted it to give a contrast of life before and after Amber Goes Missing, but I wanted to make it very immediate for the reader. So that's why the prologue is there. I think it's really important. Important to know why you're using a prologue. I don't think you can just go, Oh, because I just wanted to give them some information. I think it has to be a very clear decision as to why. So for me, it was about that before and after life and that immediacy of the panic of the phone call. And it put people straight in with the characters, but it also showed you Geneva before and after. So it gives that opportunity and the other characters. And it was an opportunity to show Amber and so that readers could identify with Amber somewhat. I think the other time a prologue is useful is if you're doing a future scene that maybe you're heading towards within the book and the reader knows that, so it's either a, a contrast between, well, so in The Good Mother, I had a tiny, tiny prologue that was, how can this everyday mother get to that point? And that's what the book is. So it added a a level of tension and suspense throughout the book because the whole time the reader knows she's going to end up there and you can't fathom how on earth that's going to happen. So I think that's why it often gets used in crime because you can add that tension in or it's a way, you have to do it with a very, a decision has to, you have to be able to articulate why you're doing it, I think, Mm -hmm. rather than just doing an info dump. Which I think yeah, is really I think, that's, really, is, I think like.
0: that's great advice, Ray, on the prologue. I think prologues can be really useful and they can really be a great book for the reader. But then, of course, then making your first chapter equally hooking, which yes. you do, because I think using a prologue as the hook and then letting the tension slide in chapter one.
1: Yeah, I should yeah, have said that. That's so yeah. important that you've got to still have the tension there in that next chapter. Yeah. Definitely.
0: So, Ray, you've very rapidly established yourself as a stalwart of the local crime writing community, I would say in Australia, but definitely within Sydney. And you've had some fantastic endorsements from fellow authors. I'm seeing them pop up on social media as we get closer to the date of Dying to Know being released. What's it been like for you to meet so many of those writers, particularly in that genre in which you are writing? And to develop those relationships within the author community.
1: The Australian writing community is the best. It has been the absolute highlight of becoming an author has been meeting these people, learning from these people, building relationships with them. And don't get me started on the endorsements. I think every single one of them made me cry when they came in because it was so humbling. Here are these people I look up to and respect so much and they took the time to read my book and then they took the time to put words down endorsing it like I just couldn't believe it it was it meant so much to me and that's with both books I have been incredibly fortunate with the generosity of the writers that I've met through my time in the writing world Honestly, the industry is incredible. They're so supportive and the crime writing people are supportive and fun and kind. I don't know, they get rid of all the evil on the page or something. (laughs) But, yeah, I feel incredibly lucky to have been welcomed in and I'm now trying to make sure that I also do the same thing to up-and-coming aspiring
0: writers you've always been super supportive of your fellow writers and that's obviously continuing into that crime community quick question about the cover ray for dying Mm -hmm. to know it is absolutely stunning you had an equally fabulous one for the good mother what was your reaction when you first saw this cover for dying to know
1: i loved it andy warren from harper design did it and he just hell he got Geneva in instantly like I was like yes that is her which is really exciting and I felt it had the feel of her being this strong gutsy woman yeah I loved it absolutely the roadway everything about it I think it's that he did a really amazing job bringing all the elements of the book together and that yellow
0: font oh my gosh doesn't it
1: Yeah, it does it really does it's very eye-catching
0: which is fantastic because we have a little bit of an inside joke in our writing group, but also in the wider writing community that there's a line that a publisher might say to you, which is, here's your cover. We hope you love it as much as we do. And I (laughs) do, which is (laughs) great. Yes, you did, which is amazing, but it's usually code for this is your cover. You better (laughs) like it. You have had a two-book deal with HarperCollins with The Good Mother after you have widely talked about the fact you initially self-published The Good Mother. You were shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Awards with that book, which was just absolutely amazing. Not amazing that you were nominated because it was a fantastic book, but for an indie author to achieve that. Yeah, I didn't know that could happen. Fantastic. And were then picked up by HarperCollins and then subsequently went on to write Dying to Know. How much has that experience of being signed by a traditional publisher and having that two-book deal, being thrown into that publishing world at that kind of deep end, how has that changed your life or in what ways has it changed your life and what adjustments have you had to make?
1: Look, it, it's interesting. I think I've gone from being a solo business woman, I guess, I had to manage all aspects and that took away somewhat from my writing time. So now I would say I'm able to be a full-time writer because I have that team of experts behind me, supporting me. But it also means, how can I put this? It I hand over my book earlier, if that makes sense. And it becomes a a team effort, I guess. I, I've loved that process. I've learned a lot yet again. I love learning. That's one of the most thrilling parts of the process. But yeah, there are advantages and challenges with both ways. But I'm really happy being with HarperCollins in a traditional publishing house. I just feel I've got people at my back a bit more. And I love a deadline and there's someone else setting them now. And so I work quite well to deadlines. I, I enjoy that that setting, whereas having to self-impose while I do it and I can, I find it easier having somebody else there Imposing it. But yeah, the other, the, the flip side of all that is that it is, I feel, and I know that I put this onto, my, onto myself, but I feel a certain pressure to sell a certain amount of copies and I feel the responsibility to somebody else rather than just myself. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, Ray, what would you say is at the heart of your writing?
1: I think that it's a desire to make sense of the world and to try and understand why people do what they do with the end goal of encouraging, I think I said it before, compassion and understanding for people when they're in difficult situations. So, yeah, that's at the heart of my writing. I really want Mm. people to have empathy for others and, yeah. And for me, I, I want to understand why people would make certain decisions.
0: And I think that's what makes your books more than just a quick crime read. There's that level of relationship dynamic and psychology of the character and mm-hmm. that whole exploration of the human, of human nature that you're weaving through the crime story, which makes it so dimensional. It's fantastic. Here you go. What is next? I know that you can't reveal too much, but <laughs> I know you are working on or started work on another book is there anything that you can give us a little tidbit off about that
1: this is going to be new to you as well <laughs> yeah um a it's an, you. it's another standalone thriller and it's kind of jodie picot's 19 minutes meets the movie the fugitive but with a oh, female lead
0: excellent i <laughs> not wait to hear more about that <laughs> We won't go further because we don't want spoilers. And I know no. it's very early days. Yeah. But you have quite a few events coming up. This podcast is going to be coming out around release time. Yep. So you do have quite a few events coming up too. And I know that you're going to be on Michelle Barraclough's Writer's Absolutely. Book Club podcast. Are you delving into Dying to Know on that one? I think
1: so. Yes, I think it is Dying to Know, actually. Yes. So we it'll be the Book of the Month like in May and then we talk about it. So it'll be out June 1st, I think, that where we dive into it.
0: Brilliant. What else have you got coming up for Dying to Know in terms of events?
1: I've got the launch of Better Red Than Dead, which I'm really looking forward to, which will have been the night before this podcast comes out. And then I'm just chatting to a whole heap of amazing people who are giving me opportunities on their podcasts. And yeah, I can't wait to talk to readers about this book. I'm really excited to see what they think.
0: Yeah, I know it's going to go gangbusters because it's such a fabulous book and Congratulations! It's amazing. Thank you. And I'm actually going to be reading it again because Oops. I couldn't get enough of it the first time round. So, so all the best with it, Ray. I hope you know it's just going to go so brilliantly for you, and just enjoy the ride.
1: Thanks so much, Pam, and thanks for having me on again. I really appreciate it.
0: Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page, Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.